going for a take. We are live. This is a lie of chest. Why you gotta read? <laughs> You're messing with my jam. I'm sorry. Oh my god. Give me a hug. You have stumbled upon Stars of Tomorrow, where every Friday I, Mr. Thrive, interview writer, director, and cinematographer. Dana St. Amon, who has not yet been discovered. This up-and-coming podcast interviews the up-and-coming. Dana, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Um, I've always wanted to pick your brain because you've done some living, haven't you? Um, yeah, 25 years of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I know things about you. I've met you on various sets like... like you know, I met you on the Lifetime TV movies that I PA'd on. Yeah, and that's I met Nicole on um, the first one we did. That's right. We're a little bit interconnected between the episodes. That episode yeah. is really great, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And actually, can I personally call her out on the podcast real quick? Uh, duh. Go okay. for it. Nicole, why have we not done karaoke yet? We keep scheduling it, then it always falls through. Come on. Nicole, you've heard her. It's time to do karaoke. And if we don't do karaoke within the next 24 hours, there's going to be an uproar. 24 hours. I want you to know, your episode will be deleted and taken off my podcast. (laughs) Indefinitely. (laughs) That's what it's come to, Nicole. You have 24 hours. Nicole, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, But, you know, it's funny. I, I know... I know certain little tidbits about you, but I don't know a whole lot. Where are you from? I am from um, Manhattan, Kansas. There's a second Manhattan? I thought you were going to say Manhattan, New York. No, nope, Manhattan, Kansas. It's, okay. It's We call it the Little Apple. Everything is branded the Little Apple. That's cute. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's a town of about 60,000 people. When the students are there, we're home to Kansas State University, which is a Big 12 university. And a lot of people have heard of the K-State Wildcats. Not quite the population of the Big Apple, huh? Oh, hell no. Okay. Um, but 60,000 people, when the students are there and when the students are gone, it's about 40,000. Um, my my statistics on or on population may be off. I haven't checked in a while, but... That's the last I had checked. Sure, yeah. The, the, at that point, when the community is that small, do you ever feel like everyone kind of knows each other? Absolutely. When I, um, which we'll, we'll probably get to this, but when I owned my um, my little tiny production studio in Manhattan, um, I worked and lived downtown in our little downtown area, and I would I was able to walk to um, most of our major little places and everywhere i went i knew somebody <laughs> i mean that that's pretty great I, I i grew up in a kind of a small town as well but it wasn't to the point where it was small enough where everyone knew each other i guess i would see people i knew i i, I don't know i i can't quite relate to that a, as much because that's just it's interesting i've never been in that small of a community yeah you um, know it was a really interesting and good place to grow up I always say that that Manhattan, Kansas is a good place to grow up. It's a good place to retire, but in between, there's not a whole lot of opportunities. Yeah, I feel that. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was your family like? I mean, uh, in this small community, did family kind of blend into everyone around you? Or was it more isolated than that? That's, um, That's kind of tricky. Um, I mean, growing up, we had a lot of, of kids my age 
And we kind of blurred together there when we would, I mean, we were the kind of kids where our parents would kick us out and, you know, as long as we were home in time for dinner, they didn't really much care what we did. Um, and we had a lot of, of, of people either my age or my siblings age, and, and we spent a lot of time with them around our neighborhood. But then when it actually comes to family units, um, there was a, there was a clear separation there, even though my family did a lot of, of, of social activities, it was still this weird defined, I guess not weird, but there was this defined separation between family units. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. What were some of those activities that you just described? Well, for instance, um, some of my fondest memories are um, um, every spring break, at least once a year, we would go and we would go skiing in Colorado because from Kansas, from Manhattan to to about Denver is is an eight-hour drive. Right. um, Which is manageable if you're going for vacation. Um, So we would go um, to vacation and... I started skiing when I was three, but then I, I switched over to snowboarding when I was eight or nine, and I've never looked back. Um, but we would go with two other families. Okay. Um, because one of the families owned uh, a cabin out there that they would rent out to people. You must have been pretty close to that family, huh? With those two families. Yeah. I mean, my parents were much more close to them of course yeah you know you know how you are as a kid you kind of get thrown into um meeting these people that you don't have a genuine connection with oh yeah (laughs) you kind of have to figure your way out um around it but but as as family goes um we did a lot together and they still do i mean the two families that we moved with have moved out of kansas for their jobs but until they moved and every time they're in town now um, my parents will, you know, they've got a big group of people that they, they do things with. You know, it's funny. I, when I, when I grew up, uh, being an only child, I always found it easier to relate to people that were either younger than me or older than me, but everyone my age couldn't do it. <laughs> and, uh, it was especially easy when I would go with my dad to his meetings. My dad would take me to his meetings through executives or through, uh, you know, rotary and whatnot. And I'd go to these meetings and everyone would kind of crowd around me uh, and, and introduce themselves. And it was kind of a cool experience. Mm-hmm. But to this day, it's like, everyone's like, oh, Charlie, how you doing? And I'm like, I'm great. <laughs> you, uh, how have you been? And like, I can't bounce off anything because I don't know who they are. Right. There's this very weird separation. There's this very weird dynamic of we interact in this one specific way and I don't know how to interact with you outside of that specific sphere. <laughs> Granted, I was only maybe like six years old when I met these people. Well, that doesn't matter. The the, the, and, the and, idea still holds up, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> they, just a lot of them still like come up to me and they expect me to know who I'm, who they are. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, okay, I don't know. I was there really for the free breakfast. Right. You know, <laughs> good times. Ah, uh, I'll go anywhere for a free breakfast. Uh, yeah, right. Breakfast is the best meal of the day. Mm-hmm. It is. Anyone who doesn't eat breakfast, you're missing out. There's a lot of people out there who I know who are like, I don't need breakfast. And it's like, are you kidding me? Guys, do yourself a favor right now. If you're listening to this and you have not eaten breakfast, I want you to go. I want you to go to your local diner and stuff your face with eggs, 
pancakes and bacon. No bacon if you're kosher, because that is trafe. And uh, yeah, you you owe it to yourself to eat some breakfast. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> Tell me about your family. My family. Um, I'm not gonna go too much into detail because a I know both my parents will listen to this. And, um, I know that if I say something bad, my mom will call me. Um, (laughs) but I think, I think we had parents who, who tried their best and sometimes failed. Um, but I mean, there's no such thing as a normal upbringing. Um, but I was given my, me and my siblings were given a good childhood. I think my parents instilled in us a very uh, good sense of, of appreciation for the outdoors for, for, um, my dad is a huge, um, astronomy nerd. I have really fond memories of me and my family waking up at three or four in the morning and, um, going out to a place called top of the world, um, which is just a really big hill in Kansas. It's definitely not the top of the world. Um, and watching meteor showers. And um, it's generally best viewed um, when it's colder out. Um, So we would curl up in sleeping bags and my dad would bring a big thing of hot cocoa. Um, And we would just watch the stars for an hour and a half and then go home. That is a beautiful, cozy memory that I wish I was there for. Yeah. That sounds really nice. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of summer camp a little bit. like. Just like the the night adventures we'd go on, and, and now thinking about it, like those are some of my most cherished memories. I remember this one night uh, at my summer camp. It was a Jewish summer camp uh, at Camp Elanim. That's what it's called. And um, we, I remember like one night, it was me and one of my best friends sitting on these bleachers outside the horse area. And um, this was kind of a, a terrifying but beautiful moment where... I think like we were just like having a conversation nothing really mattered we were kind of in the dark but also enough in the light to feel safe and then suddenly uh we heard one coyote howl and then we heard two coyotes howl (laughs) and they were all around us and of course we stayed completely still we stayed still for 30 minutes and we were probably in a little bit of danger like yeah probably when when you hear 30 uh coyotes near and around you uh, howling all at the same time that they've, you know, caught a prey, that they're echoing to their brothers and sisters in the, in their little den, uh, that they've got, uh, that they've got some, some game, that they've, mm-hmm. that they've hunted some game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little terrifying, but it was so beautiful at the same time. A little bit. Yeah. I have a moment like that. Okay. Um, if we can skip ahead, sort of. Please. Um, when I used to lead out backpacking trips, um... There was a moment where I had to, um, quote unquote, use the facilities in the woods. You were pooping. I was peeing, but thank you for that. No, no, you were pooping. No, Continue. I was peeing. Okay. Um, <laughs> and after I had finished, I turned around and there was a full grown um, brown bear about um, probably 20, 25 yards away from me. Oh my God. Yeah. And this brown bear looked at me and gave a little head nod as if to say like, hey, what's up? (laughs) And then continued on. (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm standing there just like terrified. (laughs) Were you in the middle of the pee when the bear gave you the head nod? No, I was finished. Okay, you were finished. But that's not the important part here, Chaz. Uh, You're right. I don't really want your listeners to 
think about me urinating in the woods. Everyone stop thinking about Dana urinating in the woods. Please and thank you. <laughs> Continue. Okay. <laughs> but earlier that day, earlier that same day on the trail, um, when we were leading out these trips, um, we would have two counselors with with our pack of campers. Um, and it would, it would always be, there's a counselor up front leading the way and a counselor at the rear making sure nobody gets left behind. And at this particular moment, I was in the rear. And um, some slower hikers, um, some slower campers were in front of us. And so we were, we were a little separated from the rest of the pack. Um, and we passed a tree. And it must have been this, this little baby bear, this little baby brown bear. Um, it must have been startled from the first pack and stayed up in the tree, then thought it was safe and started climbing down the tree, but then got freaked out when it saw the rest of us come up because this baby brown bear fell about 10 or 15 feet out of the tree. Oh my God. Hit the ground, but then got up and scampered away. And where was the mom? The mom, I'm presuming, is who I saw while I was peeing. Oh my God. That's terrifying. Yeah. I don't remember the scene in The Revenant, by the way. Uh, like, if Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio just got like a little head nod in that moment, I think the movie would have been a, a very different turn. It would have been. It would have been extremely difficult. Or different. It would have <laughs> been. It would have been extremely different. Yeah. 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 It would have been very anticlimactic. Because he would have gone back to the base, and they would have sold all their wares, and he would, you know, go out on another expedition. I think the movie would have been finished 60 minutes earlier. Probably. Yeah. Just about. <laughs> but you, uh, it seemed like for, you know, I've never imagined Kansas to be a fairly active place, but uh, it seems like you were a pretty active person. I tried to be. I tried to be. I mean, we had, I mean, from Kansas, since it's dead center, you can travel wherever you want. On, in a car. I mean, Chicago was nine hours away. Like I said earlier, Denver was eight hours away. Um, my whole extended family is in Louisiana, so that's a little bit more. That's more like 14 hours away. Um, but we would we would travel a lot. We would try to travel a lot. and We made it out of the country a couple times. Um, but traveling was a big part of... of um, growing up, and I think my parents really tried to, to give us those experiences. It sounds like you led a pretty active life with your family kind of traveling around a lot. What were some of the other kind of activities that you and your family did together uh, back in Manhattan? That we did together, I mean, I know when I was, when I was growing up, um, I seemed to be the kid who was interested in my dad um, fixing things. Um, my dad's a very handy person and he would fix, you know, if a pipe burst in the house or something, he would be the one to fix it before we called a plumber or if, if, um, a, uh, if the alternator in the, in the, in the van bust, he would be the one to replace it before calling a mechanic. Um, and I tagged along with that because I don't know if I was you know, born this way, or if I just kind of developed, you know, it's that nature versus versus nurture argument, or just developed a, a, um, a mindset for, for wanting to know how things worked. But, um, I definitely think my dad instilled that a little bit more. Sure. 
I mean, he is, he's a, he's a research geneticist and he works for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He runs a lab. And as a kid, when, when, when some, some random lab equipment would break and they were just going to throw it away, he would bring it home, um, just so that I could take it apart and check it out. Oh, so he kind of, he, he, he brought it back intentionally. Yeah. To show you, Mm -hmm. to, to tinker with a little bit. Yeah. That's a, that's actually a pretty cool little, uh. That's a cool little tidbit. I don't know. I like that. I like that. That's kind of sweet. Um, I mean, did you ever did you ever refurbish anything back to functioning status? Like, not really. Okay. Not especially not when I was younger. But it still it still allowed you to learn. Yeah, I mean that uh, that idea of taking something apart to its base components and just seeing how something functions is something that I've carried with me. It's um, funny. I- I didn't mean to interrupt you. I noticed that uh, you kind of put an emphasis on the things that you guys did together. What are some of the things you kind of picked up on your own? I don't think that's something I can answer because I think everything is instilled by somebody else. I don't think there are any interests that exist in anybody that aren't direct, that aren't directly influenced by other people. Um, And most of my interests are probably inherited from from my family that's really sweet it sounds like your family has a dynamic that has inspired a lot of uh you know hands-on work and i i know you today to be the the director of photographer you are and the the writer and director i know that all kind of stems from that doesn't it yeah i mean i always like to say since i did go to engineering school for a while which we'll we'll talk about but um, I always like to say that jump from, from, from going from engineer to filmmaker is a very realistic jump to me because they're, to me, they're both the same. To me, it's, it's, you take something apart, you look at it for its base components, and then you learn from that on how to create something new. In the parallel of the film world, when you talk, when you describe taking something apart, are you talking about the story? Well, I'm describing any aspect of filmmaking, whether let's, let's focus on cinematography, cinematography for a second. If you're watching a movie, um, and you're looking at it critically, you can, you can look at it and say, okay, well, this is where I think those light sources are coming from. This is how I think they achieved that look. You're taking it apart to its base components and those base decisions so that you can learn from them and then recreate either recreate or create something new of your own accord. And what's even more amazing with film is that I think a lot of these things we don't consciously notice. Like we're not consciously taking note of these little facets that create film to be what it is today. Mm -hmm. Um, But we will subliminally pick them up and then we will sometimes even accidentally reutilize those motifs, those little, those little story tropes in uh, present day films. I think I love 100%. You know, like, uh, I've always been surprised to see uh, sometimes the the symbolism that you get from uh, Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, and you and you see something very subtle happening in the background. The, what I'm talking about with Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, the very op- the first opening shot is a bunch of sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a it's like a giant stampede of sheep kind of running through uh, this this farmland, and you're watching it, you're watching it, you're wondering, why am I looking at sheep? This has nothing to do with the uh, industrial city. And then one black sheep runs across amongst all the white sheep. And that kind of subtlety of storytelling where there's no description kind of told is something that I see utilized uh, 
in the best films of today. Right. And I love that. I, I love that little subtlety um, with, with no explanation, just letting the audience interpret it. Well, Chaz, that's why the biggest rule of screenwriting is show, don't tell. Right. I, I, I do find, though, that these days uh, a lot of films and talent don't show. And those are the really bad ones, of course, but it right. pisses me off whenever it comes up. The truly brilliant films um, are those that really um, trust the audience. If you're trying to feed your audience too much, if you're trying to feed them too much um, exposition, your audience is going to get bored. Your audience is going to, th- to look at this film as um, subconsciously less than because it's the, the, the film, at, if you think of the film as an entity, it is looking down on you. Um, because it's trying to feed you everything. But if you, you, the, the films that, that trust the audience's intelligence are the ones that are engaging, that are the ones that are, that let um, moviegoers um, form their own conclusions. Those are the brilliant ones. Right. What's a movie that you can think of that came out lately, that's come out most recently, uh, that you could uh, say trust their audience in that manner? Oh, God. Um,. I haven't watched a lot of recent movies. Okay. You've been busy. I've been busy. Yeah. I've um and I've been too busy to go to a theater, so I watch a lot of old movies when I when I do get the chance. Yeah. I'm thinking of, you know, it's funny. My mind went to uh, a movie from a while ago that I think really did a great job at trusting its audience. Uh but but so here's here's I think the most recent movie that really trusted its audience. And like a movie from maybe like less than five years ago, they did a great job trusting its audience as well. The movie that I'm most recently thinking of is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that there were just certain things in that movie that like Quentin Tarantino was really relying on the audience to remember little bits of history for. Uh, and and you know what? To be honest, I didn't know much about the Charles Manson murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, I watched it with my dad, who grew up in that time, who, uh, for wa- watching that movie was incredibly nostalgic for him because he grew up in the valley Yeah. In, in that time. And he saw buildings that he hadn't seen in years, and it was very beautiful for him. But he also began to remember little tidbits from the Charles Manson murders that were kind of very subtly brought up by Quentin Tarantino with no explanation. And you're kind of wondering why you're talking to certain characters over others that would seem more practical for the story purpose, and you realize that he is doing a great job at relying on the audience to have a good memory. Right. And that's really great. Mm-hmm. The other movie, though, that I was thinking of from a while ago that did a really incredible job on a psychological level of trusting the audience and also even manipulating the audience was that movie Annihilation. Did you see that? I haven't seen it yet. That I haven't was, seen it. That was a movie that was so trippy that I remember walking out of the theater and feeling this this feeling of edginess mixed in with uh, wonder mixed with, uh, you know, almost like feeling high and I wasn't high. What I mean by high is more like my mind was in a different place. Just thinking about that movie. Mm -hmm. Like, what did I just see? Yeah. Because you're thinking about it after you left, there were unanswered questions that, um, the filmmakers trusted the audience enough to leave some suspicion. Right. Yeah. Not that I've seen Annihilation, but I'm, 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 that's what I'm getting from, oh, from you talking about it. Oh, I highly recommend it. The, Pat, the last two movies I just mentioned, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Annihilation, I highly recommend it if you want to look at uh, filmmakers who have relied on the, me- on, the, on, the, 
on the psychology of the viewer, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's how I'd put it. Uh, and they're so good. I highly <laughs> recommend them. Um, you mentioned, though, engineering school is like filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, to me, I mean, I guess that's, that's like the equivalent of when I tell someone that I'm a sound mixer, but I want to be a film director. Mm-hmm. I want to know uh, how do those two things compare? Like, where, what did you pick up in engineering school that somehow allowed you to transition into film school? Why was that natural? Well, that's, that's a difficult thing to, to explain because I wanted to be a filmmaker before I went to engineering school. Why'd you go to engineering school then? Because it's that Midwest mentality of, of you have to have a quote unquote real job before you can do your hobbies. I see. Okay. Um, so I thought I needed to get a real degree before I could pursue anything else because I needed stability in my life. Mm-hmm. And as every filmmaker knows, instability is inspiration. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to be a filmmaker, um, probably starting when I was seventeen. I mean, me and my siblings and a bunch of neighborhood friends we would make. Um, little movies when we were kids. We would make um, Star Wars or Indiana Jones movies. You're kidding me. Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies. Did you play Indiana Jones? I did. (laughs) Except... You had the hat and the whip and... Well, the thing was, the only hat that we had, and I was six years old, mind you, um, the only hat that we had that was vaguely Indiana Mm -hmm. Jones-esque said my dead name on it, um, which a dead name, for those who don't know, is the name that... um, I was born with it was the my given name before I transitioned oh okay gotcha mm-hmm. what was that name Daniel Daniel yeah okay so it had Daniel across the brim so instead of calling it Indiana Jones we creatively called it Indiana Daniel oh I thought you were gonna go with in Daniel Jones <laughs> <laughs> but um you know back then we had we had um we you know we've we shot on tapes we yeah. shot on little tapes and um, the way we edited those movies is we would hook it up to our VCR. Mm-hmm. And when we got to a portion of the, the movie that we liked, we would hit record on the VCR while we pressed play on the, on the camcorder. And it would go, and then at the end of that take, we would hit stop and hit stop, and then we'd go find in the ne- next section, and then we'd hit record on the, on the VHS player and hit record on the or and hit play on the on the on the camcorder and we would edit by starting and stopping the recording you did of in, the VHS you did in how in in camera editing essentially uh, sort of yeah wow and you don't hear that very often being used with like anything remotely digital these days they actually taught us in camera editing in this the one like one of the few camera classes I took in in film school, mm-hmm. we were using sixteen millimeter uh, Bo- Bolex reflex cameras, uh, and and we had to create a whole entire film, but we weren't going to edit them. Yeah, we weren't going to you know actually cut the film. We were just going to turn it into the lab mm-hmm. and have them uh, process the film. Uh, so that's that, that's the closest I ever came to in camera editing, and I know that that's a very difficult process. It's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, so. <laughs> That was a fun way to edit. I it bet. was. Um, the thing about those movies when we were kids, um, my older sister, being the eldest and being who she is, just had to direct. Okay. She had to write and direct these. 
She um, had to assert her place in the hierarchy. Yeah. Okay. I've talked to her recently about this and she will snarkily reply, no, but you and Greg, my brother, you and Greg wanted to just, you know, fight with lightsabers. So of course I had to be behind the camera. <laughs> um, I don't know how true that is, but um, I remember distinctly from, from, from that young age, I remember distinctly looking at what we were doing and thinking how it would edit together. And I remember, like, this specific thought process. Um, I didn't have these words to describe it, but I thought, well, why are we just shooting this in a wide? Why aren't we going in for our coverage? Oh, so you were already, like, like pr- pretty much creating a shot list. Like, you were, you were using the mindset of the DP ahead of time. Sort of, yeah. I mean, I was relating it back to, to TV shows I had seen. Or I had seen like, oh, they go from a wide shot and then they go to their close-ups. Did you ever have any uh, major influences from TV that, that kind of inspired that? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. Gotcha. But you just remember seeing, like, sitting in front of a TV, noticing that they had a variation in, in, in shooting. Yeah. And then applying it. Right. To your own home vi- home videos. Yeah. That's well, incredible. I didn't apply them because my sister was the director. Right. Um, is she in film now? No. Okay. She has a degree in photography, but um, she works for um, she works for a tech company. I, okay. I think ultimately she didn't like the the um, freelancer lifestyle. It's but, understandable. Yeah. It's a tough lifestyle. It's a tough lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not even doing uh, freelance anymore. Uh, part of me kind of wants to, and another part of me enjoys the stability I have. Right. Uh, whereas freelance, you're really looking for the next thing all the time. Absolutely. Unless you have those mm-hmm. connections. Uh, and that's difficult. It is. Yeah. It's not for everybody. No. Um, you have to learn how to hustle and you got to learn how to put yourself out there. I know people who, you know, they want to be in the film industry, but I, I kind of look at them and I look at, uh, maybe the thin skin that they have. No offense to anybody who's listening um, but I'll say like the thin skin they have or the, the lack of understanding for the entrepreneurial kind of aspect of, of this that you have to really pursue. Here's, here's my, here's the best advice that I can, that I'm going to say right now. It's going to sound very harsh, but this is, I mean, this in the most endearing way, no one is going to recognize you and no one's ever going to hand you a job on a silver platter. Absolutely not. You have to put yourself out there and be assertive whether you're you know someone who has a job lined up for the very near future or not if you are not networking then you failed an opportunity for a career right possibility and um it's more difficult for women it is um profoundly more difficult for women because um part of of our culture is we naturally view women as being less um we 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 will naturally look at a man and say i trust you that you can do this but we will subconsciously look at a woman and say we need you to prove that you can do this on a few of the different movies i've been on i've actually witnessed female grips in the in the gne team mm-hmm. and i love that yeah. And that's actually really cool to see. And they're not necessarily, uh, you know, larger, you know, muscular, heavy onset women. They're, they're, you know, if I were to see them on the street, I would assume they probably do something in an office. Yeah. And, and I really admire 
these women that put themselves out there in a male-dominated industry, in a male, in an especially male-dominated like part of the, this industry, in the, in the sub the sub category of the industry, mm-hmm. and to really do that. So if you're a female uh, grip in the G&E team or a female gaffer, I tip my hat to you because I have a lot of admiration for you guys. You guys are in a way my hero. So yeah. thank you for that. They're killing it. They are. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've gripped too, haven't you? I have. I I will occasionally work as a gaffer. That's um, pretty badass. I I keep getting called to be a gaffer instead of a DP. That's that's what's frust- what frustrates me. But that is a little bit of a bridge, though, isn't it? It is because I mean, yeah, as a gaffer, you're working with light, and and you're in in charge of of creating um, the DP's image through light. Um, so it is very much hand in hand, and it can help as a as a DP if you gaff. Um, it helps you to understand light better. It helps you to um, be able to communicate with your GE team, right? Um, I bet more yeah. efficiently, right? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've um, I've never been good with cameras, even though I've you know directed and written, and even you know shot my own stuff with, you know, starting from a camcorder, upgrading to a DSLR, and then you know shooting my thesis in film school. Uh, I am so laissez-faire at this point with the camera team because it one of my faults as a aspiring director is that I don't know a whole lot about cameras and maybe I don't need to know maybe I need to know like the shots which I which I do know the difference between a wide and a medium good usage of a canted angle or a dutch angle as some may call it you know whatever whatever it may be uh you know using the camera to further your narrative in a film I do know a lot about that but when it comes to the technical aspect of camera i feel like it'd be as if uh you were giving me a rubik's cube to try to figure <laughs> out in which if anyone knows listening to this i am trash at a rubik's cube so uh it, it's just it's just like it's it seems very puzzling to me whereas sound even though i'm a visual person i'm a visual learner sound made a hell of a lot more sense and that's just that's always something that's never made sense to me it's just a different way of, of viewing things. Right. I, we've had this conversation before where where sound and audio engineering doesn't make sense to me, but I can tell you how light will bounce off of a wall. Sure. But I can't tell you how sound waves are going to do the same thing. Oh, I can tell you. Yeah. In fact, actually, uh, I am purposely left that closet open because there's softer items in it. So I did that know way, that. So that way it muzzles the sound behind you won't muzzle the sound where the foreground is mm-hmm. but in the background this way that there's no echo behind you yeah that i did on purpose i've had it both ways before and i realized oh this closet actually works as a diffuser a little bit and that's helpful mm-hmm. you know like little different things like that like i understand uh why things are for sound but i will never understand certain decisions made for camera well that same let's use that same um that same idea okay. of of diffusing the sound behind me. Yes. Well, let's look behind you at this this window coming through. If you put uh, a sheer curtain over it, it's going to diffuse the light, and you're going to have um, less harsh shadows. Because basically, as that I mean, it's it, it, you would think about this in sound waves bouncing around, but if if photons are coming through um, your source. Or coming from your source and then hitting diffusion, if if it's just going straight, this is why you would have harsh shadows. They they go straight, they hit an object, and then directly behind that object, 
sharp shadows um, directly behind that object, no photons are getting through, obviously. Right. But if, if you send it through diffusion first, all of a sudden that diffusion lets some of that light continue straight. But then a lot of those photons, they hit the material and just kind of bounce around everywhere. You know what? Gaffing now makes a hell of a lot more sense, and I'm going to stop being doing sound now, and I'm going to start applying for gaffing positions. Oh, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> You've created a monster. Oh, no. <laughs> um, That's great, though. And did, did you kind of, like, begin to implement that in your in your home videos or when things were getting a little more serious? When things were getting more serious. Okay. So from that time as a six-year-old, you know, I, I, I hardly ever include that. Right. Because you know, um, it was, it was more fun than anything. And we were just kind of experimenting. Sure. Um, as it should be. Yeah. At the beginning. Yeah. And I don't really include when I was in middle school either. I, I mean, I would have some friends over and we would make little terrible action short films. <laughs> they were God awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we were having fun and it was something to do on the weekend. Um, but then I really got intensely interested and it's um, when I was 17. Um, and it was just after my brother passed away. Um, and it was it was a cathartic experience um, to work through things. And one day, it was the middle of summer, and I didn't know what to do with my day. And I picked up a camera and decided to shoot something. And then the next day, I did the same thing. And I would shoot and edit all in the same day. And for a while there, for like a month and a half or so, I would make something every single day. It's interesting. This It sounds like in that time, that very vulnerable, raw time, you took what you knew and you turned it into your therapy. Absolutely. Because, I mean, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but as somebody who lives with depression, anxiety disorder, clinical depression, anxiety disorder, um, it can be very, very difficult for me to express my emotions. Um, and especially back then when I, when I was in high school and really didn't know what was happening inside me, I had not been diagnosed yet and I was trying to figure things out, having something like that where I could express myself in a new form was, um, cathartic and really relieving for me. So then at that point you were inspired to just go to film school, weren't you? Um, sort of. Okay. I, um, when I, later that, that same year when I was 17, I did take that and I got, I got my first professional clients. I was doing real estate videos when I was 17. Okay. Um, That's cool. Yeah. And then between, that would be junior year of high school, between junior and senior year of high school, I started doing some, some portraits and little things like that. Um, and I thought, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker. I knew I wanted to do this, but there was still that mindset of, no, you're going to get out of high school and then you're going to be destitute. You're not going to make it. Um, you need to go get a real degree. So I eventually landed on engineering school and I had landed on engineering school because a, I love, I, I have always enjoyed tinkering and working with my hands. Um, but Throughout high school, I was always told that I would make a really good engineer. I was also told I was going to be a really good neurosurgeon. Not neurosurgeon specifically, but surgeon. That's neat. Um, yeah. I had 
um, a marine biology teacher and we were doing dissections and <laughs> on what on um, nurse sharks oh wow okay. on pregnant nurse sharks okay so um, we had to dissect a whole bunch of stuff and I don't know what prompted him to say this, but I guess my cuts were really clean or something. And he looked at me and said, you know, you'd make a really good surgeon. I think you're going to make a really good surgeon one day. He phrased it like that, like it was already going to happen. <laughs> so I thought about specifically being a neurosurgeon for a long time. Um, but then eventually landed on engineering because... Um, I got scholarships to go to Kansas State University, which has one of the best engineering schools in the country. That's a pretty good motivator, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. Plus, um, there was a girl Yeah. that I went, I ended up going to K-State for. Gotcha. Um, Not necessarily the best reason. No. And yeah. the day we broke up was the day I went home and told my parents that I'm dropping out of engineering school. How'd they react to that? Um... <laughs> My dad's first words out of his mouth were... Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> I was close. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, I'm dropping out of engineering school uh, because I want to be a filmmaker. And he said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that have... be, I think that should be every parent's yeah. <laughs> reaction to that, by the way. I want to go to film school. Oh, no. <laughs> um, they have since become very, very, very open and supportive about my career choice and and my dad has is is one of my biggest um constructive critics that's amazing yeah uh and that, so you started pursuing film school after that well directly after leaving engineering school i got a job working on the very first feature film i had done i i, I ever worked on for for a um a director out of wamigo kansas which is about 15 minutes away from okay Manhattan. Were you pa I started out as a PA. Okay. At the end of the first week, I was the first AC. Well, that's quite the the promotion. You must have, you know, clearly earned it. Uh, keep in mind, this was low-budget Kansas filmmaking where they're severely understaffed, and you could do that. Yeah, that was really sarcastic and cynical on my end. I oh, apologize. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, no, I, I was pulling focus and building cameras at the end of my first week. Um, that's, a, I mean, that's a pretty great first time film experience. Yeah. And, and that I've doesn't happen very often. I've never worked as a PA since. Is <laughs> <laughs> that the only movie you worked as a PA on? That was the only movie I worked as a PA on. <sighs> I'm so angry. I'm sorry. Cause I, I did, when I first started in the film industry, I just went from PA job to PA job. And I think I did a pretty good job. You, you witnessed me as a PA. Mm -hmm. Was I okay? Was I at least okay? You did bring me coffee once that said I was the best person on set, so I'm inclined to say that you were. Okay. Okay. As long as I can bribe you with coffee that has a good label on it. Then... Anybody can bribe me with coffee. I should not be announcing that, but anybody can bribe me with coffee. God damn it, Dan. I'm supposed to be the best one. I'm supposed to be the best PA. <laughs> Actually, I, I take that back. I don't want to be the best PA. I want to be the best director. Don't you forget it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's one thing though, like just a little side tangent. Um, you know, I I have some friends who have been jumping from PA job to PA job, and, uh, you know, they consider that success, and sure, they're getting great work. It's it's very successful and all, but then I've also asked them on the side, you know, what's your goal? And they'll say like, I want to be a producer. I want to be a, a director. I want to assistant direct. And if you're a PA, it makes sense to 
uh, PA for a long while to get those union hours. Yeah. But if you're anything else, uh, you shouldn't be PAing for more than you have to. Because there's a certain point where you have to kind of, uh, you know, cut that connection that you have with that old time position. And you have to start challenging yourself and making new connections uh, to upgrade your own personal well-being in the film industry in order to grow. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I meant in the very first episode when I was ranting uh, about what it takes to be a director. And I just kind of said, oh, in order to be a director in the film industry, you simply have to proclaim that you're a director. Right. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because that's not entirely true. You still have to be good at what you do. Right, of course. But there's also some merit to that because you cannot be a director if you don't promote yourself as a director. Well, that's why I always say I am a writer, director, DP. Right. All of those things are true, but that's what I want to do. Right. I will work as a gaffer. Right. I will work as a first assistant camera. Mm-hmm. You know, I will do all these little, different little positions, but I'm not going to pitch myself as a first AC because that's not ultimately what I want to do. As you shouldn't, you know, and I, I, I'm now at the point in my, in my career where I'm no longer uh, introducing myself as a sound mixer. Nowadays, what I'll say is I am a... <laughs> Nowadays, I'll, I've been going up to producers. I came up with this line. I'm very proud of it. I'll, I'll go up to a producer and say, yes, I'm a writer and director disguised as an audio technician. <laughs> and and I think that they get it once I say that. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a... You know what, guys? If you're listening and you have kind of a, a main hustle that isn't what you really want to be doing, feel free to steal that line because I'm sure that they'll appreciate that charm too. I want to see you guys listening to this right now succeed as much as me. Yeah. Um... Just don't forget, I'm better. Um, Calm down. <laughs> Try again. Okay, okay. I'm sorry. We're all great, <laughs> and I support every single one of you. Um, don't stop listening to this podcast, because I love your support. Thanks. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, but now you're in film school, because you did a few, you know... I'm not in film school now. No, 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 but <laughs> like at this point in your timeline... Well, yeah, well, right after that that movie that we did on Wamigo... Um, I got a job at a little um, marketing company in Manhattan, mm-hmm. and I did that for a little while, and then I um, made my first movie. I made my first little short film. I was 19 at the time. I made my first short film. Um, it was successfully crowd- crowdfunded, because back then you could do that with a short film in right. the middle of Kansas. Sure. Um, That's pretty impressive, by the sh- way. Thank you. Yeah. I will never show that movie to anybody. Why? Because it was a learning movie. I mean, I've shown that movie to people, but okay. nowadays I'm not going to show them. Like, I mean, it's not it's not up to my current standards. Okay. And I will say, by the way, speaking of your current standards, uh, I have, for the record, seen your work. I saw recently Warehouse, that, that the short experimental film that's not more than two minutes, right? It's, I think it's like two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes, yeah. It, it was really well made and incredible. I'm going to dissect kind of some of the things that you talk about in that experimental film in a second. Sure. But I, I just, I loved it. I loved uh, the color tones and the color schemes. I loved, uh, you know, kind of some of the transitions that you applied uh, in the editing. Um, I loved what you're talking about with identity and not sure not being sure of how to do an identity correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of messing with that societal, at least this is what I picked up, but that societal pressure to be a certain identity in a certain way, to fit in like a certain puzzle piece and not knowing how to. 
It's really interesting that that's what you got from it, because that's not what I was going for at all. Really? I mean, I think... We'll we'll talk about it. Yeah. But, but yeah, I don't know. But well, I'm... I'm, I'm no, 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 let's, let's talk about it now. No, no, this is super interesting. I, okay. Uh, what, what did I miss? No, you didn't miss anything. I okay. think I think... Um, I think everybody's interpretation is valid. I think everybody's interpretation of of art is. I'm, oh God, I can't say that what I do is art. Why wouldn't you say that what you do is art? Well, I I I had a teacher when I was in film school. Um, I forget which specific teacher it was. It was either uh, Richard Rothrock, my screenwriting teacher, okay. Douglas Scholes, my directing teacher, or um, Robert Skates, my cinematography teacher. Okay. One of them said. And this has always stuck with me. Never call yourself an artist. Call, Why? Your, call yourself a craftsman. Why? Because you're practicing your craft. And you are getting better at your specific craft. Never call yourself an artist. Let other people call you an artist. Can't you say that I'm practicing my art? You could. But I don't know. That idea has always stuck with me because um, I've always worked with my hands. And I've always... I've always been a craftsperson, I think. That's so interesting. Okay. It, it helps me relay what I do back to my other interests, I think. That's super interesting. And I, I, I'm curious if you guys would like to respond to this and let me know uh, if that kind of influences you and has a little, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a, a peak of your interest as well. I, I don't know. I'm going to think about that one for a little bit because I... I've never thought about it that way before, but I, I respect it mm-hmm. highly. Yeah. Uh, it's it's super interesting. I've just never uh, referred to myself as that. I, I think if I, I were to consider myself in a certain category, I wouldn't think of craftsman mm-hmm. as my first one, but that's super interesting. Yeah, I think it also goes to um, the idea of you are a craftsperson, you are practicing this craft, you are not the best at this craft. Sure. I think it... it you know, I mean, I can't, I don't have the smallest ego to begin with, but I think it helps knock down that idea of egotism within the craft. Right. Um, which can be a very big problem in this industry. Sure. Going back to film school now, uh, did you have a most cherished memory from film school? Um, probably um, working with some close friends, um, it was um, Lucy Gillespie, also Lucy Gillespie, Alex Gasparetto. Um, they were dating at the time, and now they're married. So now it's Lucy Gasparetto and Alex Gasparetto. Cool. Um, we knew they were dating before they knew they were dating, but that's all another story. Um, it was their movie that Lucy had written and that Alex was directing. Um, and we, it was the thesis, their thesis film, and we shot the short film. Like, I want to say at least 75% in a trailer home. Okay. In I can imagine the difficulty being how small that could tiny, that claustrophobic that is. Yeah. Tiny. Wow. Okay. Tiny yeah. with, with um, all of our equipment in the middle of summer with no AC. What kind of camera were you using? We were using my, um, my Blackmagic Pocket. Okay, the so very very first pocket cam. I was gonna say it'd be very unfortunate if you had a big camera, like even like even if you had a red, which isn't right. particularly huge, but still would take up enough space. Well, we rigged my camera out to be functional, 
Even it? with even with small bodies, you have to rig them out to be okay. So it still was actually fairly. It took was... up a little good piece of real estate, didn't it? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that's one of my fondest memories because that was you're you're in you're in the shit, so to speak. <laughs> um, but you're you're bonding with the people that you're working with, and you're creating something, um, and. I don't, I don't know that when I think of film school, that's what I think of is we are doing whatever it takes to, to make our projects. Um, and we're enduring, um, quite a lot (laughs) to get it done. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was just talking about with, uh, a few episodes ago with Max Richter about, uh, you know, telling him that I kind of miss those shit shows. Uh, and I do, Mm -hmm. I really do. They can be a lot of fun. They can be a lot of fun. But also uh, exhausting. So exhausting. And luckily you're at the age where like you have the stamina for it. Mm-hmm. College is a pretty good time for just like uh, pushing your limits of stamina. Yeah. And then just, just, you know, PTFO, pass the fuck out at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Just gone. Oh, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm only going to say this because A, we were in film school. It was a low budget thing. C, it was so miserable. D, we were staying on location, so there was no driving afterwards. Wow. Um, we drank all day. You were drinking. We were drinking. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't anything like it. It was basically we were using cheap beer as water. Oh my god, that's a terrible idea. It's an awful idea. Oh my god! And then the editor looks at it and goes, "Why is this out of focus?" Uh, it's an artistic choice. Don't do that. That's such a stupid idea. Do not drink on set. It is so dangerous. Why did you do that? I, Especially it, in the blistering heat of a of a trailer. It was some way to um, calm us down, to relax <laughs> a little bit, to cool us off. Wow. I don't know. After my thesis film, I pulled out this obnoxiously large bottle of wine, and me and the crew drank with all the film gear still around, and uh, there was this... I don't think I ever told anyone this, actually. (laughs) Um, We were kind of having a little, like, mini rap party Mm -hmm. in the middle of rapping. Yeah. Which is a terrible idea, because you should rap and then rap party. 100%. We were doing it at the same time. So we, we had crew members with, like, one hand had a bottle of wine, and the other hand... Uh, it was was like putting away like camera gear, and one of the PAs bumped into someone, and a little bit of wine just fell out and spilled into like this one case. And this one case looked very similar to the camera case. Mm-hmm. And though they we we thought that they spilled bare, uh, like wine on on the bare naked uh, iris of a camera. Oh God! And I remember I just it's went, not called the iris by the way. Uh, the sensor. The sensor? Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, the sensor. My bad sound mixer here anyway (laughs) so like i remember that the room went silent and we looked at it and it turned out we dropped it on a mole light instead which you just you know wipe off the the wine from the lens and you know it was fine you're good to go but we were freaking out for those like everyone's heart stopped you could hear a needle drop it was terrifying yeah and everyone got really quiet because we were not about to return I was not about to re- I was not about to return this gear and, and, and say, by the way, I I'm gonna pay for this camera now. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll just save you guys the trouble. Right. I could not do that. Wow. That gives me so much anxiety yeah. <laughs> thinking about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. But then you graduate from film school. Graduated in 2014. And then you just chase the film industry, right? <laughs> sure. No. no. I, um, at that point, I kind of ran out of money. Because um, I went to film school in Detroit, Michigan. Um, and I was, I was, um, paying my, paying my apartment bills and everything. And, um, we had three people living in a one bedroom apartment. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it was god awful. Yeah. But again, film school. Hey. Um, yeah. I mean, these were the days when I would keep a blanket and pillow underneath my desk so that I could have long night editing sessions and then while something was rendering out, I would sleep under my desk. And when and when Premiere would give that little ding that it was finished rendering, right. that would wake me up and I'd get back to work. Wow. So, I mean, these were not exactly comfortable times. Right. Um, we, so, yeah, we had three people living in, in this one-bedroom apartment, and the other two people were moving. Sure. And I couldn't afford the apartment on my own. Um... So I decided to go back to Kansas. That's rough. Yeah. I decided to go back to Kansas and and try to figure out what to do. How long had it been since you lived with family last? Um, so my my um, film school was only a year long. Okay. It was a one-year um, film-specific intense program. What was the film school called? The Motion Picture Institute of Michigan in Troy, Michigan. You know what? Uh, my cousin graduated from that. Really? Yeah, he did. I didn't realize. I like as as you were describing it, I was trying to like think like, is it the same one? I think it is. And I'm going to confirm with him later. My cousin Jordan Ettinger uh, is a is a graphic artist, a CGI artist. Yeah. And he he went to that film school for that. Nice. That's really cool. Okay, so continue. <laughs> um. Yeah. So we went. And Troy, Michigan, is 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 um, a little suburb of Detroit. So we always say, you know, I went to film school in Detroit. Um, but after I got home, I got a job. Um, I was working for Boys and Girls Club to to have a little bit of an income. But I was living with my parents again. Um, which, if you've ever lived on your own and then returned home, it's frustrating. Oh yeah. Um. But, and, and, and I really wasn't enjoying working for somebody else. I really wasn't enjoying, um, doing something that wasn't in my industry. So I don't, I, and at the time I was, I was picking up little freelance gigs. And I think at some point I just kind of decided, I decided to go for it. So I, I sat down with my parents and said, Look, I, I want to quit my job. Um, if you'll allow me to live here, um, I want to start a business. And that's what I did. That was pretty nice and supportive of them. It was very supportive of them. And and I've talked to them about it and it would have been very different. I didn't want to be a freeloader, and that's the thing. I didn't wanna I didn't wanna be end up being thirty living at my parents' house, but at that point in time I couldn't really support myself with what I was doing. Um, and they were supportive enough and encouraging enough to let me stay there while I built a business. Yeah. Which not a lot of people have, and, I, and I'm very fortunate of that. That's beautiful. Yeah. It sounds like you have a couple of great parents. I do. They try their best. Yeah. Um, and, and what happened with that business? What, what proceeded to take place? 
Um, within the year, I moved out because I was I had enough business to hey, support hey, hey. myself. And that's the entrepreneurial aspect about you that I actually didn't know too much about, but I could tell was there. What I've always said, uh, I, I especially mention it in the first episode, is that people who end up on this show, I bring them on because I can tell that they have a certain level of charm to entrepreneurship, to artistry, or in this case, craftsmanship, <laughs> that uh, is can be perceived. And I think the people that do make it successfully in the film industry have a great combination of all three of those. And I always knew you did, but I didn't know to what extent. And that's incredible. So you got this business off its feet to the point where you could move out of your parents' home. Uh, did you live far from them? or No, 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 no. My first, the first apartment I lived um, in Manhattan, um, it was, since Manhattan is, is a college town, there's a lot of, of fairly inexpensive college housing. Sure. Um, and a lot of houses get converted into things. So so my apartment was the top floor of an old house, of a of an old two-story house. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I lived there with me and my cat, <laughs> and I ran a business. That's cute. And it was, you know, it was maybe a five or ten minute drive from my parents' house. But in Manhattan, right. in Manhattan, Kansas, everything's a five or ten minute drive away. What kind of work would people hire you for? I was doing a lot of of portraits, family portraits, senior photos. I was also doing a lot of weddings, both video and otherwise. Um, product photos, product videos, um, little tiny commercials. So, you know, it, they weren't, like, really um, um, creatively demanding, mm -hmm. which eventually did get to me a little bit, but it was still in this field that I was hooked on. Right. Um and I was proud of myself for being able to do what I enjoyed doing and supporting myself. Right. And was that, I mean, you must have felt pretty satisfied with yourself. I mean, that's a tricky subject. Why is that? Because of my depression, anxiety disorder, it's very difficult for me to be proud of myself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but you gotta, you gotta give it to yourself. A little bit. You do. I mean, seriously. I mean, I. It's gonna sound awkward if I just start clapping for you, but I, I would. You know, I, 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 I think in that respect, you're one of my heroes for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um. It wasn't like I was, you know, making millions off of my business or anything, but right. the fact that I could feed myself, pay my bills, pay my rent, was enough for me. How old were you then? Um. I started at twenty. I started the business at 20. All that by 20 years old. And, and you're now 25. 25. Right? Mm -hmm. When did you start going to California? I have been here for just just over a year. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why did you come to California? So, let's backtrack a little bit. Sure. Um, I had talked about my first little apartment that I ran my business out of. Eventually, it, it got to the point where I moved to our little downtown um, our little Manhattan, Kansas downtown. And I was part of a business group and, and, you know, again, I wasn't making millions, but I was able to support myself. Um, I moved to our little downtown and I found the perfect space where there was a, a big space up front for me to put a studio and then I could live in the back. And I lived and worked downtown. It was a good time. But it sounds kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting. Um, at our peak, at my peak, rather. Yeah. Um, 
I had one intern and my cat. You're kidding me. You had an intern even. I had an intern. Wow. So this was an official business that you ran. Yeah. I mean, it's a sole proprietorship, but I was registered with the IRS. Good for you. <laughs> That's really amazing. I had some like definition of a business in high school. Uh, at the time it was called Channel Thrive Productions. Mm-hmm. And that was just, I was trying to like market to like, like make like marketing videos for local businesses. And I think out of it, I got three videos made. I just was not good at it. That was my first attempt at experimenting with business. Because in, in some respects, uh, I was inspired by my dad. Yeah. Uh, who who had a business by he by the time he was 16. And that part... Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, granted, they were different times. But still, I, I always envied that. Like, wow, you had responsibilities by 16. I want to be adult like that. And instead, I found myself in, in a... A position of of not really feeling like I was doing a good job. Mm-hmm. I was only able to get three movies made from connections through my father, and it didn't it didn't go beyond that. You know, I was proud of my work, but it, I thought that it would be taking off a little bit more successfully. And and I think I just didn't understand um, the drive that forwards a business mm-hmm. at the time. Um, you know what that drive is? Tell me. You can't have a second option. That's your one thing. If you fail at this, you're on the street. That is my approach to this podcast, by the way. Yeah. Now. Well, then you've got the mindset. Yeah. I have the mindset now, and I've read books on the, the mindset too. But back then, I didn't have that. It was at least a good start to just kind of like, you know fiddle with it to to play with the the concept of business mm-hmm. maybe it didn't go very far but you know what i'm not apologetic about that because that's that's the age where i should be like experimenting and then and then failing and then experimenting again until i figure it out you know right. and I, by the way have i do i do i have it figured out today mm, no not exactly that's some, that's that's the whole that's the moral of the story of being a 20 something mm-hmm. you know and I, I kind of love my 20s right now. I'm, I'm, I feel so lucky to be where I am right now. I really do. Good. So you were at a business peak. It's so to speak. Yeah. I mean, as you described, which is really incredible. And I really envy that. But then why would you move to California? It seems like things were going really well. Things were going okay, but there were a couple factors that ended up leading me to deciding to move. Mm-hmm. One of those was... Um, a lack of satisfaction with with the creative. Um, there wasn't a lot of creativity involved with what I was doing. Okay. Um, and I wasn't particularly satisfied with that. And I think that was a, um, a really big leading in factor. But the second thing is um, my transition. Your transition into becoming a female. I've always been a female, Chess. Understood. Yeah. The, the idea of, of being trans is... Um, I was born into, this is a very, very um, limited way of looking at it, but essentially I was born into the wrong body. Um, so when I say I've always been female, even though I was assigned male at birth, and even though I had sex characteristics of a male, and even though I was raised as a male, my experience is of a trans female who didn't realize that she was trans. That's, uh, it's hard to piece that together when you've never had that gender identity, would you call it a crisis or, or? 
I I don't know. Okay. Good question. Sure. I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's I mean, if we really want to go back to like the beginning, I can talk about what it's like to to grow up with that. I uh, I've always felt kind of uncomfortable in my body. I've always felt kind of like something wasn't quite mixed right. Um but I, for most of my life, I really did not have the words to express it. I didn't have the ideas to back it because we're not, especially in the Midwest, we're not taught about these kinds of things. We're not taught that that um, these these feelings, these symptoms, can can exist. Um, so, when I was a kid, I would do stuff like um, <laughs> I stole a pair of clip-on earrings from the church that we went to (laughs) when I was like four years old or something. Okay. And I don't know, I mean, I now know what compelled me to do that, but I didn't know what compelled me to do that when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what compelled me to do that to then sneak around and wear these on my own. Um, But I just knew I felt more comfortable. Okay. Um, And then... Around that same time, three or four, I would start um, dressing appropriately to my gender um, a little bit. Yeah. In secret, because... Of course, yeah, because, I, I, I assumed, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of... Un, the unfortunate truth is people who don't understand these things when they're growing up, but they're, they're experiencing it, they have a lot of um, internalized guilt about it. They why think is that, that they i i don't i couldn't tell you exactly what <laughs> why yeah, it was sure i mean it was probably because i mean if you were raised to be a boy but you felt more comfortable in girls clothing um and you didn't understand why i think you just assumed that you were weird that there was something wrong with you what was the what was the straw that broke the camel's back when it came time to I just know it's time for me to transition. When I was in those earlier stages, something happened and, and, and I repressed those feelings so much. I, um, I was emotionally repressed. And it could have been the start of, 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 of testosterone puberty, which I call testosterone poisoning. Um, or it could have been um, outside forces. So I had become so emotionally repressed that I really didn't think about um, these experiences for a long time. I didn't think about um, being un- I thought about being uncomfortable in my body, but I didn't think about it the same way. Um, I really just oppressed, repressed those those um, feelings for for a very long time, and then I was um, I think twenty three, and. I I was 23 and I um my girlfriend at the time was was on a uh, um my girlfriend at the time was in Washington DC for an internship and I had my apartment pretty much to myself. I you know, I didn't um I didn't have places or I didn't have other people spending a lot of time there. So I had a lot of time for the first time in a long time to sit and 
and think about some things and sort through some things. And these symptoms crept back up and these, these, these feelings crept back up. And I was old enough to, to internally look at a bunch of things and, and try to decipher these feelings. And, but I still didn't have a name for it because again, we weren't taught about these things. And it took me Googling and trying to figure out what was happening for me to see a single definition of transgender. And it's like, re and, and I do not exaggerate when saying, reading that one definition was a light switch and everything in my life made sense. Wow. Everything related to that in my life made sense. Of course, yeah. Um, and I just kind of said, huh, well, it's no going back now. <laughs> That's, right. That, 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 that's me. Right. So you started going down this rabbit hole of of learning about your identity. You found the definition that, that kind of most applies to you. Or didn't even most apply to you. It just, it did apply to you, 100%. It was me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that terrifying to kind of look that in the face finally? No. Oddly enough, it wasn't. It wasn't terrifying putting a name to these feelings. The terrifying part was coming out as, right. as you know any any um lgbt person will say the terrifying part is thinking that people aren't going to accept you for who you are and was that was that true um look i grew up in kansas kansas is not all that accepting of a place yeah. generally speaking that's a pretty good influence to want to move to california pretty much yeah. um my parents my parents made some mistakes when I first came out to them. They made some mistakes and they said some things that they shouldn't have said, but we've talked about them. And um, now my mom's an advocate and my dad is accepting. And I mean, thing, things um, are strengthening between us. So they are now very, very accepting of me. Um, but Kansas itself, it's, it's kind of sad to see your hometown kind of turn on you. Sure. Um, I bet that puts your family in a little bit, a little bit of a, an interesting position, too. I don't know that they notice it okay. that much. Okay. Um, because the people that my family has cultivated in their friendships are warm-hearted, very accepting people. So I don't think they see that side of it but on a day-to-day -day, um walking around town kind of aspect getting side-eyed or 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 glared at or or something said to you is draining did that happen a lot it did so sorry i mean because everyone knows each other in this small sixty thousand population yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the people I grew up with were, were generally very accepting because our generation seems to be more open about these kinds of, kinds of things, which is good. Yeah, to start. Uh, yeah. But the biggest factor I saw in wanting to move to California and finally deciding to move to California was that um, my business suffered. Really? Okay. Yeah. My business suffered. People 
stopped doing business with me. There were a lot of people who took it in stride and continued to do business with me and were very open and accepting. But, like, let's talk about the business group I was in. Um, there were a lot of, of really good people in there that, that accepted me and welcomed me and helped me along. But then there were, there were other people who, the, the, the day after I sent the email to our business group explaining the situation, I walked in and felt the respect for me had dropped. That's very disheartening. I'm so sorry. It is. And you must have felt pretty lonely in that time. I did. So that was... Around that time, I had just... A friend of mine, um, a DP out here, uh, a director of photography out here, um, I had talked to him, and he hired me on a show out here in California. Um, and I worked a feature film as, as a second AC for him. And I wasn't out publicly at that point, but I had already been on hormones for nine months or so. And I came out to the crew because I felt comfortable enough to. And everybody on that show was accepting. Everybody. That's relieving. Everybody on that show showed me a great amount of support and a great amount of love. And I'm still in touch with a lot of them. Amazing. Um, and then I go back home to my business, to Kansas, where, where people have stopped doing business with me. And that was the final straw. So it was time to move to California. It was. What was the hardest thing about moving to L.A.? So the hardest thing about moving to L.A. has been making that first left-hand turn. I am still sitting at that intersection right now. I'm giving this interview from my car trying to make that first left-hand turn. It is impossible to turn left in this goddamn town. This was your joke? <laughs> I told you it was terrible. God damn it. Okay, so, guys, for those listening... You don't actually have to put that in there. No, no, no. We're putting it in here. It's in. It's in, in. It's, it's gonna be in. Because not, even before the session where we sat down and kind of discussed how this conversation is gonna be, Dana had asked me to prompt that question. And I was like, what joke could she possibly have up her sleeve? And this is what I've been waiting for. I am... So disappointed. I'm sorry. I mean, yes, it's hard to take a left turn, but, like, I, I don't sympathize. I'm sorry. Okay, well, I come from Manhattan, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> We're making a left-hand turn. Doesn't take four hours. Welcome to L.A., sweet cheeks. <laughs> oh, my God. By the way, I don't even know what that voice was, but... <laughs> That's I, your yeah. producer voice? That was my producer voice, yeah. Mm-hmm. You gotta be a star! Oh, man. Okay. Well, I'm so glad I witnessed that joke. Thank you for preparing me for all this time with that joke. I told you it was bad. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, but now, you know, you're finally living that L.A. dream. and Oh, yeah. Ramen noodles four times a week. I mean, me too. <laughs> you know. No, I, things I, have been pretty good. That's great. Um, and obviously there's there's some major differences to your life in Kansas and you're pursuing the film industry in a much more productive atmosphere. Absolutely. Um, 
how has that kind of, has that emotionally helped you or has, are there new challenges now that you weren't expecting before? There are a lot of new challenges now. Um, and just living in LA, um, you know, back, back home, I could walk to all the important places. And like I said earlier, everywhere I went, I kind of, I knew people. That doesn't happen in LA. You can't walk anywhere. Um, a lot of people probably find comfort in that anonymity. Um, I find it exhausting. You have a thirst to know people or to, to, to kind of find that, that, that comfort of people having your back. Is, is that what it is? It's a comfort thing when you're in a, in, in a place that you, when you're in unfamiliar territory, it's a comfort thing to find, um, something familiar that you can latch onto. Is that hand in hand, which with a with a sort of uh, culture shock? It is in a in a in a, in a large part. Yeah, because um, things are very different out here than they were back home. I imagine you feel a lot smaller out here. No. 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 That's great. I mean, because regardless of where I am, um, in the world, I am still with me. <laughs> can't leave myself behind um i am still uh, an internal (laughs) i am a brain yeah you are a brain you may think so oh god (laughs) um okay well you are a a highly sophisticated cyborg um it's closer to what i am yeah you have a, a cpu that runs hot um that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. The point I'm trying to make yeah. is that um, no matter what, all we can think about is is our own internal monologue. Yeah. Um, so, no, being in a, a situation where there's lots of things around me doesn't make me feel smaller. Um, in a lot of ways, it makes me feel more um, in tune with that monologue if you will which is a very pretentious way of saying that it's it 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 it, it's making me a more internal person that's incredible um and i think that's a good thing isn't it i think so i mean i've always been an introspective person and i think i think um becoming more of an introspective person makes me um better at what i do yeah um Ultimately, it helps me reflect on my faults. It helps me reflect on the, on the, um, on the mistakes I've made, and it, it helps me try and correct what I can, and um, and and apologize for what I can't. And you know, that's not a very easy thing to do. Like I know plenty of people who aren't able to kind of look at their faults. Um, I think, not to toot my own horn, ironically, for what I'm about to say. I, I know for a fact, as you may have picked up from this episode, that I'm a very arrogant person. But no I also shit. Yeah. <laughs> Chaz, how long have I known you? Uh less than a year. I mean, yeah, but Anyway. <laughs> I I know I'm an arrogant person, but I do think I'm pretty good at admitting my faults or at least listening to criticism. You know? And because I know that's a that's gonna be an integral part of of success when I when I when my life takes that quantum leap into the next phase where I begin to really pursue uh, something much more up to my speed of creativity 
where I can make a career off of it. Uh, I think that that kind of criticism, the fact that I'll be able to look at it and be able to nod my head and either agree or disagree, take the best parts of the criticism and whatnot, that'll, it, it takes, it takes a lot of, uh, confidence in self and, 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 and uh, uh, and security. And, yeah. and it sounds like you're, you're beginning to get that out here, which is, means I think that's progress. I'm trying to. And, yeah. and honestly, a big, a big reason I'm able to do that was because of my transition. Because um, being on hormones, um, a, a, a fair amount of, one th- for one thing, if, uh, if you're transgender, some transgender people choose not to transition medically. Some do. It's, a, it's completely what feels comfortable to that person. Um, I feel significantly more comfortable medically transitioning. Um, but a lot of trans people that I've talked to who have medical trans- medically transitioned have expressed the same feeling that um, when you start hormones, it is such a quick-acting thing, and you feel significantly better. Um, and I mean that, like, I've always had clinical depression anxiety disorder and i've never had a baseline that's anywhere close to quote unquote a normal person's baseline being on hormones has brought me to that um i still i mean depression is something i i I will always live with but the fact that it's not as the, the fact that i do not feel numb every day that i do not have these intense swings of emotion um is something that has finally allowed me to feel like a person for someone what is what is the what is the best advice you could give to someone who hasn't transitioned yet who who wants to but is too scared to hmm i don't know okay because i was going to say um do it because you'll feel better once you do but depending on their situation i mean trans people are um within the the highest percentile of suicides and it's never i mean to the best of researches um to the best of research attempts it is never because of who they are. It's, it's never because they feel ashamed of who they are. It's always external forces. It's always their parents not accepting them. Or it's always because they were bullied because of it. Or it's always because they weren't accepted from their jobs. Or it's always because, you know, XYZ external forces against them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hesitate saying, do it because you'll feel better when you do. Because this world can can be really shitty to people like me. Yeah. Um, and the fact, the, the ugly truth of being a trans person is, depending on your situation, you will have a harder life. Yeah. Not to be naively optimistic, but I will say that luckily we are in a time where it is getting easier 
for trans people to not only come out, but to embrace their identity and to live in communities uh, that welcome them. It is. And that, I think, is an amazing first step that'll be the, that'll that'll be the catalyst to change that's very important um just because everyone matters in their own way uh right. and that's not some naive saying that i just came up with that's a that's a fact we all have so much potential and that potential if it goes unnoticed because of a certain aspect of your identity then that creates a certain level of narrow-mindedness that deters from society and our ability to progress. So having you or anybody involved listening to this create is a really beautiful thing at the end of the day. Yeah. It really is. Speaking of creating, what are some of the ways that you've begun to create out here in L.A.? So... I have been extremely lucky so far in my experience in L.A. Um, Because I know a lot of stories of filmmakers coming to L.A. and then either having to live in their cars or get a job slinging coffee or burgers, you know, to, to support themselves and then try to make it in the industry. I was lucky enough that when I moved out here, I had a couple of contacts from previous work. um, And I had my first job within the first three weeks. That's very unique. Yeah. That is good for you. And that, being the freelance life, led to the next few things after that. Right. I have never been in a position where I needed to get a job outside of my um, uh, my freelance work out here which I, I understand is extremely fortunate. Um, and I'm very lucky that that has happened to me. I mean, recently I, I am starting to work for a little management company, um, more or less full-time, but that they approached me about that. They approached me, and, and I was in a position where I could say, yeah, all right, I'll do it, as long as... I'm able to take off and go and work on on projects when they arise. So I was able I'm able to keep that freelance lifestyle while still having a little bit of stability. That's nice. It is. And it's, it gives you some freedom too. It does. Yeah. And it's a really interesting, really fortunate situation that I, I found. I envy that and I wish I, I had that. <laughs> I really do. Um but besides you know, getting employed to these different freelance positions, you work for yourself a little bit, working towards your craft. I do. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, that craft and, and how you have been able to expand on that? Well, sure. Well, freelance-wise, I will work camera department primarily. Okay. Like I said earlier, I will work as a gaffer. But a lot, I've, I, I work as a director of photography. Um, so I always introduce myself... When I say I'm a DP, I always say I'm a working director of photography because there's a lot of directors of photography who aren't working all the time um, and have to do other things to help support them. That's a really good, subtle uh, use of wordage, uh, by the way. It's really smart. Thank you. Yeah. Um, where you have work and whatnot that you've, that you've put out there, where are some places that we can find your work? 
Um, a lot of the things that I've been the cinematographer on um, haven't been released yet. Um, so there's a lot of my previous work that is not visible yet. Um, there are a handful of things that you can find on my website. Um, and, um, but a lot of things, like, a lot of my recent work, um, like, I just worked with, through my, the management company I work with, um, Producer Entertainment Group, um, we, we, um, primarily manage, um, drag queens. Okay. So I just shot with, with Blair St. Clair, um, of, of RuPaul, um, of Drag Race fame. Um, and of course she has been doing a lot on her own and we, we just shot, um, some things I can't really talk about, but will be, will be released within the next month or so. That's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and people can see, can see that when it comes out and I'll, I'll post that on my socials. Sure. What is your website? My website is probably best if you just link it down below because it's Dana dot... S-T-A-M-A-N-D dot net, which is really frustrating because my last name has a period in it, but then with domain names, I can't put a period between Saint and... It sounds frustrating. And then where's the best... What's the best place to contact you through? Best place to contact me through is through my email, which is just Dana at S-T-A-M-A-N-D dot net, or um, Instagram or Facebook. All of her socials, her email, her website will be displayed in the description below of this episode. And then the second thing is I've got another short film that um, I wrote several years ago that I've been trying to find the, the right time to make. And um, I think now's that time. So I am in the early stages of pre-production for that. Isn't that an exciting moment when you when you know it's the, it's the time? Yeah. I, I get is. that. I get that way where I kind of bottle up a project idea in my mind. And then finally I think about it, I think about it, I think about it, I live my life, I live my life, I think about it, and I live my life, and then finally it's time to, okay, we got to make it. Right. It's time. I figured it out. Mm-hmm. It, that's such a good feeling. It's so, it's so relieving when you first start. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think so. Uh, how can we support your projects? You mentioned that you're, you're starting to fundraise now. I'm, I'm not necessarily fundraising, but I'm trying to find um, investors. Um, okay. Uh, because if, if it's going to be my first feature, I want it to be made right. I right. want it to be made well. And, and that, unfortunately, in this business means you just have to raise a shit ton of money. If you want to contact Dana, her socials email is all in the description of this episode. Please contact her if you're interested in investing uh, in her projects because they are going to be spectacular. Mm-hmm. My projects deal a lot with, I mean, of course, some of them deal with identity and trans issues but of course um that's not all i write about um i can write about other things (laughs) um the short i'm making is a sci-fi that really that really deals with uh the process of grief for example um and i have a lot of writing that 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 um explores the intricacies of 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 how everybody in this world is just trying to figure this shit out. It's just trying to figure life out. And we're all really screwed up in some way. I, I, it sounds like a project I'd be very interested in, in, in supporting and watching when the time's right. 
Yeah. Because it's psychological. It is. It's. I mean, it's not like a psychological thriller, but no, no, no. it deals like heavily with with psychology. Yeah. It's drama. Yeah. And and I think sometimes uh, when it comes to drama, you forget about the psychological aspect, and I, I'm. I'm very interested to see how you emphasize that mm-hmm. in your in your work. I think that's not tapped into enough in today's media. So I'm very excited to see what you do with that. Thank you. Dana, now that we're coming to a close in this episode, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask everybody traditionally on the show. What will you be famous for? Um... I personally don't want to be famous. I want my work to be famous. I want my work to be famous um, because it. I want my work to be cathartic to watch. I want my work to connect emotionally to people. And I want my work to make people feel like, um, especially people with depression, anxiety disorders, or, or trans people, or, or people who feel who are marginalized in some way, I want my work to connect to them so that they don't feel alone in this world. That's what I, I think I want my work to be famous for. I have so much respect for that because you and what you just said are separating the visceral aspect of meeting you from the visceral aspect of your work to come. And that's really exciting. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for coming to the show. Uh, it's been an me. honor to, to have you. And uh, I can't see I can't wait to see where you go. And where your work goes. Hey, neither can I. <laughs> Hold on a second. Thank you, by the way, for advising me on some of the... <laughs> put that in there I'm very <laughs> don't you fucking dare <laughs> I wasn't expecting that oh, that is such a good burp
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.